All right, so as you all know, we've been diving in the book of Philippians over the past couple weeks. And um, you see several themes, uh, repetitive themes throughout the book of Philippians. And one of those is the theme of unity. And uh, Jerry was talking about this at the beginning of chapter 2. But Paul had this eager desire for the church at Philippi to be of one mind, right? To be of the same love, to be of the same mind. And he desired that they be unified in who they are and what they were doing. And so he desires the same things for us as well. And so this idea of unity, we, we ask the question, well, what does it look like? How do we unify as a body of Christ? And that happens, that expresses itself through the act of humility. And so then it asks the question, well, well, how do you be humble, right? How do you show humility towards others? And thankfully, Paul spells that out here for us in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, just like we talked about last week, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. So how do we as Jesus followers, we, we show humility in our lives? We do that because we consider others' needs as more important than our own. We see that their uh, needs are more important than our own. And so we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we think that, and then we're like, okay, got it. Check, putting others' needs above my own. Check, considering others' interests before my own. Mental check, got it, right? But it's easier said than done, right? We all know that. Because we are hardwired to be selfish, We are hardwired to consider our needs before others, to be number one on our list. It's no issue for us as sinful human beings to consider our needs before others. It's what we do. And all of these realities point to our deep, deep need for an example. And not just any example, but a perfect example who we find in Jesus Christ. Jesus sets the ultimate example of humility in that he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. Think about that. Jesus himself did not count equality with God a thing to be be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus himself would take on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The savior of the world who is highly exalted, who is the name above all names, the one that we just sang about. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This Jesus would be the ultimate example for you and for me in that he would humble himself to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is our true example of humility. So when we talk about this idea of humility, it's certainly not void of the gospel, right? We understand as believers that the only way that we can see humility is through the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished, but it's also Christ within us that will give us hope for showing humility in this world. Because we see that our flesh constantly butts up against this, right? 
But with Christ within us, we have real opportunity to show humility to a world that's desperately needing it. This morning, we're going to continue to read uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And we're going to use the same theme of posture like we talked about last week. Um, to start us off, I'm going to give us an overarching theme of where we're going, and then we'll have specific truths throughout. But the, the theme is this, the posture of a Jesus follower should look different than the world. The posture of a Jesus follower should look different than the world. Uh, by the way, you know when you start reading scripture and you're like, ah, Jesus, did you really have to go there? Like, did you really have to get at that point in my heart, and my mind? That's where we're going right off the bat in verse 14. So go ahead and buckle up. Uh, Paul has some challenging truths, exhortations to give us. Uh, truth number one, here we go. The posture of a Jesus follower should be without complaining or arguing. The posture of a Jesus follower should be without complaining or arguing. Verse 14, Paul says this to the church of Philippi and to us as well. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world I mean Paul do you really mean all like isn't there like an asterisk there like do most of the things without complaining or arguing right like can't we grumble about COVID-19 or having to go back to work tomorrow or school starting soon? Come on. What's the big deal if I argue on Facebook about my political views all day, right? Come on. Do we really mean all things without grumbling or complaining? Now, please hear me out. Certainly, it's permissible for healthy arguments to take place. Uh, there's room to have differences in our views and our opinions. We can talk about those things in a healthy manner. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, Paul is getting at the heart of believers. When you think about what's coming out of your mouth, ultimately, it's what's coming out of your heart, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So simply out of interest, uh, there's a small group here. So let's just uh, be participants. Let's participate. That's the word I was looking for. Um, what do you find yourself complaining or arguing about? You can just shout it out. Okay. We can relate to that one, right? Good. What else? The weather. Yes. Real talk. What else? Housework. Okay. You guys never complain or argue about anything? Money, your job, okay? Maybe two more things. School. Kids what? Disobeying, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, questions to consider when we think about uh, uh, what's coming out of our hearts, right? And what kind of posture does this show, right? When we're arguing and complaining. When we complain about the weather, does our posture look more like joy or sorrow? When you complain about your finances, does your posture look more like thankfulness or ungratefulness? When you complain to your coworker, does your posture look Christ-like or contribute to the negativity around you? 
When you argue about politics, is your posture one of trying to defeat others with your viewpoint or seeking to understand theirs? When you argue with a family member or a friend, is your posture one of humility or is it one of arrogance? Guys, these are challenging questions to consider. These are incredibly challenging for me. And I'm convicted even asking that question to you all because I found myself within this last week complaining about COVID-19 and wearing a mask and it getting stuffy and it getting hot, right? Like that was me. So like I need this message just as much as anyone in this room. And I found myself once again being convicted and asking the Lord for forgiveness, asking him to give me a renewed heart and a renewed mind and a posture of thankfulness, a posture of gratitude a posture of humility. You see, when we complain or we argue, it's, it's more than just, are we complaining? Are we arguing? But why? Why are we complaining? Why are we arguing? And it gets to the heart, right? What are we not believing about the gospel in that moment that we feel the need to argue or to complain? Maybe it's showing us something deeper within our hearts of, I want things done my way, (laughs) and now. Or, I think I'm right, and you're wrong. Therefore, I want to be on the throne. I want to make these decisions and rule and reign. And Paul's telling the church at Philippi, he says, look, church, you're supposed to be set apart. Be set apart in this world as followers of Christ. You are called to be different than the world to be blameless and innocent without blemish you are called to shine you're called to shine as lights in the world and that word blameless that paul uses there please hear me out it doesn't mean sinless perfection okay we're 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 sinful people we're going to make mistakes rather we must be above reproach as believers especially towards those who are outside the faith Especially, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, which looks a whole lot like arguing and complaining, right? But rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so what does that look like practically? When we go to complain or go to argue, we have to come to the realization of, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for, for wanting to to, to argue or to complain in this moment. What am I not believing about the gospel in this moment that I feel the need to do this? God, forgive me. Give me a, a heart, a posture of humility, of gratefulness, of thankfulness. Help me to shine like a star in the world like you've called me to. In verse 16, Paul encouraged the Philippians to hold fast to the word of God. Continue to offer it to others so that when Christ returns that Paul would be proud of the Philippians and the way that they honored Christ with their lives. He loved this body. Paul loved the Philippians and he desired that they make much of Christ in their lives. And so as Jesus followers, we too are called to hold fast to the word. This word that is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Second truth is this. The posture of a Jesus follower should look like sacrificial love for the sake of others. 
The posture of a Jesus follower should look like sacrificial love for the sake of others. Elizabeth Elliot, um, who many of you are probably familiar with, one of the most influential women of the 20th century, uh, she would give her life as a missionary alongside her husband, Jim Elliot. And their goal was uh, to share the hope, one of their goals was to share the hope of Christ with an unreached people group called the Akas. And Jim, um, in, in a sacrificial act of love, uh, would ultimately cost him his life as he was speared to death by the Aka Indians for sharing the hope of the gospel. And Elizabeth would tell us this. It is impossible to love deeply without sacrifice. It is impossible to love deeply without sacrifice. These concepts go hand in hand, right? Love and sacrifice. If we truly want to love one another well, it will be costly. It'll cost us our time. It'll cost us our energy, our money, our resources, our reputations, what others think about us. But the posture of a Jesus follower follows the example of Christ himself, right? Who would willingly give himself, sacrificially give himself for the sake of others. We see this presented in Paul's life as well. Check this out in verse 17 and 18. Paul says this to the church at Philippi. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Jerry talked about this in the first chapter, but Paul was writing this letter from prison. And he knew that uh, his time of death was probably coming soon. And um, Paul desired that his life be poured out as a drink offering unto the Lord. A sacrificial offering that was pleasing unto the Lord. And so in the midst of these sufferings, the persecution that Paul was facing as a result of following Christ, now in prison he is rejoicing and he's glad. And he's telling the Philippians, you too should be glad. You too should rejoice because it's for the cause of Christ. And the sacrifices that Paul made for the church would point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself on the cross. So what does this mean for us today? Maybe us as believers, us following Christ won't put us in prison, although it could. But this gospel, this response to the gospel is called to look like sacrificial living for the sake of others. It has major implications for our lives. And so with that, I want to ask you these questions. I have several questions this morning, by the way. When I think about loving others sacrificially, is my love for Jesus and others defined by sacrifice or convenience? When I consider my time, energy, and money, am I open or close-handed? In other words, do I freely give to others in response to the gospel, or do I withhold and only store things up for myself? Am I willing to go the extra mile to help those around me, whether spiritually, emotionally, financially, physically? The posture of a Jesus follower looks like sacrificial love unto others. We see this all throughout scripture. These verses uh, explain it so well. John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 
Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Guys, this is so unbelievably countercultural, right? Unbelievably countercultural. Because our culture says, you do you. You make the most of yourself. You put yourself first. And I will gladly bring you down so that I can boost myself up. That's the world that we live in. And yet Christ would say, I want you to put others' needs above your own. I want you to actually sacrifice your life for the sake of others. Paul would joyfully tell the Philippians, I will gladly be poured out as a drink offering for you. In fact, I will rejoice in this. Be glad and rejoice with me. Back to chapter 1. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is sacrificial love for the sake of others. Let's have this kind of posture. Church, let's have this kind of posture. Will it be costly? Absolutely. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be sacrificial love, right? Will it be worth it? Absolutely. (laughs) Why? Because it's for the cause of Christ. It's for the cause of Christ that we sacrifice our lives for one another. Truth number three. The posture of a Jesus follower is genuinely concerned with the spiritual well-being of others. The posture of a Jesus follower is genuinely concerned with the spiritual well-being of others. Um, We see this to be true in the remainder of chapter 2. Paul refers to his main man, Timothy, here. And he says, starting in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Check out what he says about Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Remember, Paul's writing this letter from prison. Um, He doesn't have the ability to go physically be in person with the church at Philippi. And so he sends someone who he has full confidence in full trust in, and that is Timothy. And if you know anything about Paul and Timothy's relationship, they had somewhat of a father-son relationship, just like he explained here. And so Paul wasn't just sending anyone to the church at Philippi. He cared so deeply for them that he wanted to send his best. Others are looking out for their own interests, but not my man Timothy. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And as I read that, I just began to think about that. What does it look like for us to be genuinely concerned with the spiritual well-being of others? Because the first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? All your soul, all your mind. That's our vertical relationship with God. But out of the overflow of that comes our horizontal relationship. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so this causes us to to realize as a result of the gospel, as a result of our vertical relationship with God, we are called to live our lives in such a way 
that we love others in our horizontal relationship with him. So I have a final set of questions for you to consider regarding spiritual well-being of others. When I'm with younger believers, do I desire them to grow and mature spiritually? When those around me are struggling in their walk with Christ, do I desire to pray for and encourage them? Is there at least one person in my life that is less mature spiritually that I can begin to walk alongside of being a Paul to a Timothy? Do we have genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others? And this could be a sermon in and of itself, but uh, the call of discipleship is for us, right? As followers of Christ, this isn't for the professional Christians, those who are in vocational ministry. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is the calling on our lives. That we, yeah, that we consider others' needs as more important than our own, but also that we bring others with us, right? Follow me as I follow Jesus type of mentality, and guys, we won't do this perfectly, right? We will make a lot of mistakes in the discipleship process. And as a result, we ourselves will see our great need for the gospel and have the opportunity to show that to those that we walk alongside of. So just as Paul eagerly desired this for the church at Philippi, for the believers to grow and to mature, he's asking that of us as well. So I want us to think about who are our brothers and sisters in the faith right now. I'm not just talking about little kids, right? Although we do want our kids to love Jesus, our youth to love Jesus. But what about one another? All of us right here in this room need one another. I need you. You need the person next to you and the person in front of you and the person behind you. We need each other. That's how God created us. And so what does it look like practically to look out for the spiritual well-being of others? Maybe that's sending encouraging text messages to one another. and Reminding each other of the hope of the gospel. Maybe that's sending each other uh, a scripture to hold fast to. Some days that might look like asking for forgiveness. Some days that might look like uh, weeping with one another in the hardest times of life. Others that might be rejoicing with others in the best times of life. When we're showing genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others, we're putting into practice what we talked about last week. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, as we come to the end of this passage, we see uh, these postures so beautifully uh, displayed in Paul's really good friend. His name is Epaphroditus. And um, he uses some really special words to describe this friend and also the sacrifices that he's made for the sake of the kingdom and for the church at Philippi. Check this out in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker, my fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill indeed he was ill near to death but God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious 
So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Check this out. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Um, You know, we don't talk about Epaphroditus much in church or therefore any other time. Um, But he's worthy of honor, Paul says. And I just have a simple question based off of that passage that I just read. Do you have an Epaphroditus in your life? Do you have an Epaphroditus in your life? Spouses don't count here, by the way. But who is someone that sticks closer to you than a brother or a sister? Someone who is with you through all of life's ups and all of life's downs. Who's consistently there to encourage you, to pray for you, to challenge you, ask you the hard questions? Who's the person that when you don't see them for a while, you eagerly long to be in their presence again? Someone who would willingly risk his or her life for your sake. Who is someone when you look at their walk with Jesus, you are so deeply encouraged. If you're thinking of someone right now in your head, that's likely your Epaphroditus. And if you have an Epaphroditus in your life, hold fast to that person. Thank God for that person. They are a good and beautiful gift from the Lord. They are a tangible expression of God's kindness and his generosity towards you. And if you don't have an Epaphroditus in your life, what if you began to be an Epaphroditus for someone else? Instead of waiting for someone to come into your life, what if you just began to ask the Lord, I want to posture myself in a way that sacrifices my life, my time, my energy, my resources for the sake of the kingdom. And God, along the process, would you bring a brother? Would you bring a sister alongside of me that I could walk hand in hand with for the sake of the gospel. What you might find is the Lord would develop those relationships and bring you closer together and you will have an Epaphroditus in your life and what a beautiful thing that would be. You know, as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about our little body of believers here in Elizabethan and, um, you know, if you think about it, we've only officially been meeting for about six months and a lot of those weeks have been online because of covid and so with that being said it is very exciting to think about all that the lord has in store right for the future of uh, of us as believers as individuals as as family units but also a collective body and i just wonder who in this room and those of you who are watching online people who are part of our body who are the timothys That say, I want to learn, (laughs) I want to grow, I want to know Jesus Christ, I want to serve him faithfully. Who are the Timothys within our body? Who are the Pauls within our body that would see those Timothys and say, I want to walk alongside of you. I'm not going to do this perfectly, I'm going to make mistakes, I'm going to fail, but I want us to grow. (laughs) I want us to mature, I want us to follow Jesus together. And I wonder who in our church body is an Epaphroditus. Maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you look back to this moment and you say, Lord, they were my Epaphroditus. They have 
faithfully walked alongside of me through the ups and downs of life. They have challenged me. They've encouraged me. They have loved me sacrificially. And what would happen if we as a body of Christ would humble ourselves and we would ask the Lord, how would you like to use me? How would you like to use my gifts, my talents, my abilities for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of loving others? God, use me. Use our body for the sake of your glory.